Hello, and welcome to Tiny Insect, episode 1.12, Drug Bust. Over the past four episodes, we've been laying the foundation for understanding why the British and Qing empires went to war in 1839. The Qing Empire was watching its supply of silver run lower and lower, which they attributed to purchases of increasingly huge quantities of opium grown in British India and transported to their empire by barbarian traders. The British had emerged from the Napoleonic Wars as the globe's preeminent naval power. At home, a team of ideological inclined free traders and new industrialists manufacturing cheap clothes pushed for neutering the power of the British East India Company and flexing the powerful British Navy for expanding trading privileges abroad. In China in particular, the British had a chip on their shoulder from what they saw as poor treatment by the Qing in the past. For the next few episodes, we're going to be covering the main narrative of the Opium War. I'm going to be heavily relying on two books in particular that I want to recommend. The first is called The Opium War, Drugs, Dreams, and the Making of Modern China by Julia Lavelle. The second is called Imperial Twilight, The Opium War and the End of China's Last Golden Age by Stephen Plott. As the titles suggest, Lavelle's book starts with the Opium War and looks forward to how the conflict was remembered in the subsequent 180-odd years. Platt's book, by contrast, takes the opening year or so of the Opium War as its endpoint, a clear delineating mark between the Qing Empire that could resist colonial militarism by the British and one that couldn't. So, when I refer to Lavelle or Platt, these are the books I'm talking about. After a few years of wavering between opium legalization and harsher policies, by 1838, the Daoguang Emperor had firmly committed to a path of complete opium prohibition. That had been official Qing policy for a long time, but now it was time to get serious about it. The silver needed to stop flowing out of China, and the man Daoguang chose to lead this campaign was a Qing official named Lin Zexu. Lin Zexu was born in 1785 in Fujian province, on the southeast coast of China, to the northeast of Lingnang. He was the son, grandson, and great-grandson of wannabe imperial bureaucrats who had never passed the exams. Lin Zexu thus grew up studying for the exams in poverty alongside his father. Like Hong Shiquan, he began taking the exams as a tween. Unlike Hong, however, he didn't get stuck for long. He was, by all accounts, a brilliant student and earned the prestigious Jinshu degree on his third attempt at the young age of 26. Lin rose quickly through the ranks and earned a reputation for his good judgment and incorruptibility. He was a certified workaholic who spent the first 20-odd years of his career hunting pirates, collecting salt taxes, and managing complex waterworks. Julia Lavelle calls him, quote, a careful bureaucrat with a passion for freight management, end quote, because of his elaborate plans, never fulfilled, unfortunately, to reform the transportation system supplying grain to Beijing. In 1833, Lin proposed the promotion of growing poppies and producing opium in China itself in order to stem the outward flow of silver. The first, but certainly not the last, Qing official to propose a supply-based solution. It was this solution, Lin thought, that was best fitted for halting the outflow of silver from the empire. 
but he wasn't ideologically committed to this free market solution. He was pragmatic and tried to focus on what he thought would get the job done. With the Daoguang Emperor asked him to implement a prohibition policy, as we'll see, he jumped at the opportunity. In 1837, Lin was promoted to Governor General of Hunan and Hubei provinces. Although he was sympathetic to arguments for opium legalization, by the time of his appointment, he decided that domestic suppression of the drug's use and trade was the answer to China's woes. He wrote the emperor in support of harsh punishments for opium use, although he didn't do so out of spite, he said, but because he believed that solving the opium problem and ending the drain on China's silver supplies would be better for the Qing economy and generally beneficial, even if some opium users had to be punished harshly to get there. And most importantly, success in this arena would be his ticket to the governorship of Jiangsu, the rich province where he could fulfill his true passion, irrigation and waterworks. As governor general of Hunan and Hubei, Lin launched a campaign against opium use. Pipes and other opium equipment were seized and destroyed, and the drug was confiscated wherever he and his men found it. Lin also set up medical clinics to help treat addicts and to help them kick their addictions, recognizing that it would be very hard to stop opium smuggling if there were addicts who were willing to pay for it. But it wasn't all kindness and understanding. When the Daoguang Emperor asked Lin Zexu what he thought of his plan to give opium users a year to kick their habit under the penalty of death, Lin signed on enthusiastically. Through all of his assignments, Lin developed a reputation for complete incorruptibility. Lin Zexu wasn't the only Qing official with this kind of reputation, but he was in a definite minority. By the 1830s, self-enriching corruption had become so ingrained, the idea of leveraging one's imperial appointment to become filthy rich so expected that failing to do so was something to hide. Julia Lavelle describes one example. Quote, when one of Dao Guang's less corruptible officials retired to his native place, his family filled boats with 80 wooden crates loaded with bricks so that locals would think that it was gold hoarded in the course of a five-decade career, end quote. Lin's efforts and reputation impressed the Daoguang Emperor enough that he summoned Lin to Beijing in December of 1838. They met 19 times over the next month, an astounding figure given the preciousness of the Emperor's time. Suitably impressed upon discussing the subject of opium, Daoguang empowered Lin Zexu with an imperial commission to travel to Guangzhou and end the opium trade once and for all. Lin would coordinate with local officials there, but he would also have power over them. He would answer directly to the emperor. On his way to Guangzhou, Lin Zixu passed through the rich market towns of Suzhou in Jiangsu province and Hankou in Hubei province. He wrote that in interviews with merchants in these cities, he learned of the impact opium was having on the value of silver relative to other goods. One merchant told him, for example, quote, Goods exchanged for 10,000 taiyao 20 or 30 years ago sell for only half that today. End quote. When Lin asked him what happened to the other half, the man replied, Nothing but opium. At the time Lin was dispatched to Guangzhou, the foreign traders there still believed that the Qing 
were on the verge of legalizing the opium trade, because that's what they'd been hearing from their Chinese friends and probably wanted to believe. Most officials in Guangzhou did in fact support legalization, and the Daoguang Emperor gave that choice serious consideration, as we discussed in episode 1.9. But the majority opinion in Guangzhou was a distinctly minority opinion in the empire as a whole, and prohibition had won out. The dealers were in for a rude awakening. Down in Guangzhou, Governor General Deng had continued to try to drive opium from Lingnan in the previous several years. In episode 1.9, we saw how Governor Deng had actually been a proponent of opium legalization up until the mid-1830s, going so far as to collect the writings of a scholar who was particularly articulate on the subject, and sent them with his recommendation to the emperor. But he lost that debate in court, and so Deng followed the imperial policy and increased enforcement against opium trading and smoking in Guangdong and Guangxi provinces. In early December 1838, around the time that Lin was headed to meet with the emperor in Beijing, Qing officials working for Governor Deng seized an opium shipment inside the foreign factory compound in Guangzhou. A few years ago, this would have been unthinkable. The East India Company, however complicit with the opium trade they were, however much they relied on it, knew to keep the illegal and legal trade separate. That's why the whole system of country traders had developed in the first place, to maintain the company's deniability. But with independent free traders running the factories in toothless oversight from the British government, the smuggling operation had moved into the factories themselves. A lot of this activity was among American and other European traders using the factory, not just the British. Although British government officials didn't think that they were responsible for the actions of citizens from other countries, the Qing definitely did think it was their responsibility and didn't understand why the British couldn't keep these other barbarian tribes in line. From the perspective of the Qing, the factories in Guangzhou were run by the British, and they bore the responsibility for what went on inside. At first, the drugs were seized, but nothing else happened. A week after the seizure, however, Governor General Deng moved to send a signal to the foreigners at the factory. As Platt describes the scene, quote, a small body of soldiers appeared in the small dirt plaza in front of the factory buildings and hammered up a wooden cross in preparation for executing a convicted opium dealer by strangulation, end quote. So the plan was to crucify a guy in front of the factories to send a message that they too were part of this. It's your fault that this guy is being executed because you keep bringing your damn drugs into our country. I don't know if the symbolic importance of crucifixion was chosen in particular for their Christian audience inside the factories, or if it was simply the punishment that the Chinese law prescribed for opium smugglers. Either way, the Christian, British, and Americans inside the factory were not happy about it. They stormed out and began to tear down the cross and scaffolding. Some of them began to shove and push a crowd of Chinese civilians who had gathered to watch. The crowd didn't take kindly to this and fought back. A brawl ensued. Rocks were hurled, and British and Americans were driven back into the compound and barricaded themselves against the crowd that was trying to break in. The siege only stopped when a contingent of Chinese soldiers broke up the riot 
and saved the compound's residents from the attack. Suffice it to say, tensions in Guangzhou were high before Lin Zixu ever departed Beijing. Lin Zixu took two months to travel overland to Guangzhou, stopping on the way to consult several prominent anti-opium scholars, including the movement's godfather, Bao Shichen. Bao advised Lin to, quote, purify the source, end quote, of the problem, which Lin took to mean that he should, quote, confront the foreigners importing opium, end quote, an interpretation that Bao would dispute after everything went to hell. Whatever Bao meant by telling Lin that he should purify the source, it is true that even among the most prominent anti-opium crusaders among the Qing elite, many were deeply concerned about confronting the British about the issue, and told Lin as much before he departed Beijing. When Lin arrived in Guangzhou in March 1839, he wasted little time in getting to work. Opium from Guangzhou, Lin announced, was responsible for the entire Chinese opium epidemic, and he was here to put a stop to it. Proclamations went up, calling on people to surrender their pipes to be destroyed. Nearly 43,000 were turned in or confiscated over the next few months. Thousands of people were arrested. Thousands of pounds of opium were confiscated. Lin paid high prices for informants to turn in their neighbors. In some instances, Raids by Lin soldiers were resisted with barricades and street fighting. A general sense of terror and trepidation fell over Guangzhou. Within three months of his arrival, Lin ordered the arrest of five times the number of people for opium crimes that Deng had in the previous three years. Lin organized the citizens of Guangzhou into groups of five, each responsible for guaranteeing the others abstain from opium. To implement a similar system in the countryside, he ordered the revival of the Baojia, a system of household registration. Once households were registered, local gentry were to organize them into groups of guarantee against opium use. We'll talk a lot more about the Baojia in a few episodes, because its revival will be one of the more important things to come out of the opium war, because of how it empowered local gentry in Guangdong province. The Opium War is a turning point in the trend toward empowered local elites and weakened central state control that will transform China during the Taiping Civil War and help define Chinese society all the way up until 1949. Among those Lin summoned for interrogation were the Hong merchants. These men, some of the wealthiest in the entire empire, were forced to kneel in front of Lin and answer his questions. Lying to him would be punishable by death. Lin excoriated the Hong merchants and said that he held them personally responsible for the empire's opium problems. They had helped the foreign drug dealers corrupting the empire, supporting them, and even going so far as to lend them sedan chairs. Like teaching foreigners the Chinese languages, allowing them to use sedan chairs was a crime. Wu Bingjiang, the wealthiest of the Hong merchants, was now 70 years old and in poor health. He confessed to an American friend that he wished he were already dead. The stress was so much for him. It probably didn't help that when Wu attempted to bribe the new commissioner, Lin responded, quote, The great minister does not want your money. I want your head. End quote. When Lin Zexu sent the Hong merchants away, 
he sent them with a message for their foreign friends. Surrender all of the opium currently in your possession within the next three days and sign pledges never to import again. He also composed a letter to Queen Victoria, which urged the Queen to stop all opium production in her domains. Quote, I now give my assurance that we mean to cut off this harmful drug forever, Lynn wrote. Our heavenly court would not have won the allegiance of innumerable lands did it not wield superhuman power. Do not say you have not been warned in time. End quote. The man who had received this message in the Guangzhou factories was, like Zlin Zexu, the product of his society and the system of advancement it used to produce its governing elite. Under different circumstances, the two men could probably have worked together toward a shared goal of curtailing the use of opium and helping purge the addiction and criminality they both believed it bred. But the circumstances were what they were. Both men owed their status and livelihoods to their respective empires that employed them, and in the end, both pursued policies designed to advance their own government's concerns over the others. And though neither man would persecute the most consequential fighting of the war to come, the actions of both of them would set the stage for the conflict. Charles Eliot was born in 1801 in Saxony, where his father was the British ambassador. The Eliots were a noble family of Scottish provenance and deeply enmeshed in the growing British Empire. Charles's grandfather was an earl and war hero, and his uncle was a governor general of India. As was common practice for someone of his background, Charles Eliot joined the British Navy at the age of 14, where he served for 16 years and rose to the rank of captain. From there, he joined the Foreign Service and was posted to British Guiana with the assignment of looking after the welfare of the territory's black slaves. He investigated and documented the abuse and torture inflicted on enslaved people and tried to implement some rules the British government had passed to curb the worst of the abuse. The short experience turned him into a committed abolitionist, and after three years he returned to Britain to help the government implement the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. The Abolition Act was passed during the same parliament that stripped the East India Company of their trade monopoly. Both bills received the assent of King William IV on the exact same day. Next, Charles Eliot joined Lord Napier on his ill-fated trip to Guangzhou as the Lord's master attendant. Eliot helped direct the attacks on the forts guarding the approaches to Guangzhou. After Napier's demise, Eliot jumped around between posts and I can't quite follow for a few years, but in 1836, he was assigned to Napier's old job, chief superintendent in Guangzhou. Over the next few years, Eliot didn't exactly make friends with the British opium traders. He detested the trade and those who carried it out and doesn't seem to have tried to hide his feelings very much. At the same time, he recognized the vital role that opium played in the British trade economy that he was there to oversee. Like Napier before him, Eliot was given no authority over the opium traders and was instead tasked with managing the quote-unquote normal trade in things like tea and silk, even though everyone understood that they were interdependent, that the sale of opium provided the silver and credit that the normal traders needed to purchase said teas and silks. 
Charles Elliott was in Macau when he received Lin's issue's ultimatum, via the Hong merchants, that the foreigners had to surrender all of their opium in their possession within the next three days and sign pledges never to import it again on pain of death. Elliott's instructions from his boss, Lord Palmerston, were, in the context of Lin's demands, confusing and contradictory. Elliot was supposed to avoid giving offense to Qing authorities, but also not deal subserviently with them either. In the face of Lin's demands, Elliot's commitment to protect British traders and property won out over any anti-opium sentiments that he held personally. At the end of the day, Charles Elliot was an agent of the Queen. Her subjects were his to protect, no matter what kind of dumb or morally dubious things that they did. So, Elliot put on his full naval uniform and sailed to Guangzhou. Since Lin Zexu had issued his three-day ultimatum to turn over the opium and sign the pledge, the traders at the Guangzhou factories tried to figure out if this new Qing High Commissioner was serious. They offered to give up a thousand chests of opium, about 5% of what they had at the time. But this offer was roundly rejected. Lin had the Hong merchants paraded in front of the factories in chains and threatened them with execution. On March 22nd, Lin issued an arrest warrant for a prominent British trader named Lancelot Dent, but he refused to surrender. Elliot sailed into Guangzhou the evening of March 24th, took Dent under his personal protection, and began immediate preparations to evacuate the factories. Later that evening, Lin announced that all trade with the factories would cease immediately and ordered all native Chinese servants out of the factories on pain of death and had the small compound surrounded by land and sea by more than a thousand armed guards and a triple row of war junks. There would be no evacuating. The 350-odd foreigners left in the factory were stuck. Water and food were plentiful. The blockade was loose enough to allow fresh food through. But with no one left to cook for them, the men had to amuse themselves by trying to learn how to boil eggs and potatoes properly, since they had always had servants or women to prepare their meals for them. After three days of the loose blockade, Elliot conceded in a spectacular fashion, one that would lay the foundation for the upcoming war. Until now, the standoff had been similar to previous conflicts between the British and Qing, like those we discussed in last episode. In incidents over the previous decades and further back, that when the British wanted to do something, the Qing said no and withdrew trade privileges, and then the British backed down. Sometimes shots were fired in anger, but things would always return, just about always, to the status quo. An escalation of some kind was probably inevitable. This is the century of European colonialism, after all. But I don't think it would have led to such a quick and violent escalation without Elliot's dramatic capitulation to Lin's demands. On March 27th, Charles Elliot sent word to Lin Zexu that he would turn over all of the British opium, more than 20,000 chests, with contents weighing more than 1,600 tons. But the opium wasn't Elliot's to give away. It belonged to the traders, many of whom had it in their possession on consignment or as trustees. After just three days of the blockade, they weren't ready to give up their precious cargoes for nothing. So, Elliot bought it from them with IOUs from Queen Victoria herself at 100% market value. 
Charles Elliott had no actual authority to do anything like that, and if anything, he'd received orders telling him explicitly not to help the opium dealers and let them just eat their losses if the Chinese caught them with the illegal drug. The traders didn't actually know what Charles Elliott's instructions were, and they knew that they'd have a good case in the court if the British government tried to renege on the promise of one of its sworn officers. It was a much better option than the alternative, which was probably seizure of some or all of their opium by Chinese authorities with no promise of compensation at all. So they agreed to Charles Elliott's offer. The total value of the opium topped 2 million pounds, or $10 million. It was a tremendous amount of money at the time, about 30% of the entire annual federal budget of the United States in that year. Why did Elliot decide to make such a tremendous, unprecedented offer? First, I think it was basically an impulsive decision made by someone trying to be a hero. Elliot was a proud naval officer who donned his uniform to come to the rescue of the Guangzhou factories and couldn't stand to do nothing. According to some non-British residents in the factories at the time, he'd also become a bit unstable, so he may just not have been thinking straight. Second, his instructions from the British government were contradictory, and probably left him feeling like he had no good options. With no good framework for proceeding, he jumped at the first thing that seemed like it might solve the problem. Third, I think he drew upon his experience with the British abolition movement. The Slave Abolition Act of 1834 had abolished slavery throughout the British Empire just five years ago. But the government hadn't just left the slave owners empty-handed. Instead, the government created a 20 million pound fund to compensate the owners for their quote-unquote losses. That's 10 times the value of the opium that Elliot had just bought and 40% of the British government's annual income at the time. All the money was borrowed, of course, and the payments on the debt to the slave owners was only wrapped up in 2015. No compensation or reparations were provided to the former slaves. If the sin of slavery could be ended through government purchases, why not the opium trade? It only took a week for Elliot to go from buying all of the opium to give to Lin Zexu to writing home and demanding an armed invasion of the Qing Empire. On April 3rd, Charles Elliot began sending dispatches to England, begging for a fleet to come and rescue them, and avenge all the wrongs perpetrated against them. He wrote that the British should blockade the Pearl and Yangtze rivers, and seize the island of Chushan to turn into a British colony in a plan eerily similar to one free traders had circulated a few years ago as revenge for Lord Napier's demise. Oh, and the Navy should force the Qing to reimburse the British for all the opium that Elliot had just bought in the Queen's name, and make them say that they're sorry. Why the fast turn toward war? Charles Elliot didn't leave behind any journal or contemporaneous evidence for why he did what he did, so we're left to guess based on his public statements, letters, and actions. Elliot still planned on turning over all of the opium. He didn't really have much of a choice at this point. But, after Elliot had promised to turn over all of it, he'd expected Lin Zexu to take his word seriously and let everyone out of the factories and allow the regular trade to resume, to make Elliot a hero. But, Lin wasn't born yesterday, 
and insisted that Elliot and his compatriots would remain imprisoned in their factories, suffering through one another's cooking until the opium had actually been surrendered. Lin and his fellow Qing literati officials had seen little evidence of the British honoring their word over the previous decades, and didn't trust them to turn over the opium if freed from their captivity. Lin Zexu required surrender of three-quarters of the opium before he would let them out, a process that would take a long time as the ships had to be recalled from Singapore and Manila to where they had taken flight when the blockade started. So when buying the opium back didn't work, Elliot began writing home for more help. Although I don't think we should underestimate the power of a British aristocrat's wounded pride, I also think that Elliot realized that buying 20,000 chests of opium in the Queen's name hadn't been such a hot idea after all. Perhaps he'd remembered or been reminded that surrendering the opium was just the first of Lindsay Shue's two demands. The second was the pledge that all traitors were expected to sign, promising upon pain of death never to bring opium into the Qing Empire again. When it came to this demand, Elliot had no choice but to vigorously oppose it. The problem with the pledge, at least from Elliot's perspective, was the matter of extraterritoriality, which had been a core demand of the British government for decades. This principle demanded that British citizens were subject to British laws and only British laws, no matter where the crimes were committed. So, if a British sailor killed a Chinese peasant in Guangzhou, the sailor should be arrested, tried, and punished by British officials under British law covering said offense. The Qing, and I think quite reasonably, believe that if their barbarian guests committed crimes on their soil, the perpetrators should be tried and punished according to Qing laws. This wasn't just an academic exercise. The question of extraterritoriality had already caused several minor diplomatic rows over the previous decades. If Elliot signed the agreement to never bring opium into the empire, he would have in principle been conceding that Qing law could be applied to British citizens in Qing territory because opium was obviously legal in the British empire. And so Elliot quickly came to believe that war would be the only way for the British to force extraterritoriality upon the Qing and recover the Queen's money he'd just spent on 20,000 chests of opium to boot. When Lin Zexu dispatched the Hong merchants to remind the barbarians that they still had to sign the pledge to never bring opium to their empire ever, ever again, Elliot took the proposed agreement, tore it up, and threw it in the fire. You might as well come kill me now, he told them. I'm not signing that agreement. His letters home demanding the British Navy come and force a better solution, were already on their way home. Elliot wrote letters to his boss, Lord Palmerston, throughout the events of 1839, including many begging for the Royal Navy. These letters would take months to arrive in Britain, and months longer for their response to arrive back in Guangzhou. We'll catch up with Lord Palmerston and the fallout in Britain next episode. The first opium chests were actually surrendered to Qing authorities on April 11th, 1839, and it took a few more months to collect them all. Lin Zexu had the opium destroyed with salt and lime before flushing it out to sea. It was, he must have thought, a great success, a true turning point in the fight to rid China of opium. 
on April 22nd, he received the promotion he coveted, Governor General of Jiangsu Province, the richest and most prosperous region of China. Pending, of course, successful completion of his mission in Guangzhou, which was surely just a few months away now. The residents of the factories were finally released after nearly all of the opium had been surrendered to Chinese authorities. On May 23rd, Elliot ordered everyone to evacuate the Guangzhou factories and rendezvous at Macau on the western side of the Pearl River estuary. A few months later, in early July, a group of British and American sailors took some shore leave on a rocky, sparsely inhabited island called Hong Kong. They stole a bunch of local rice liquor, which was usually laced with arsenic, got drunk, and went on a rampage. They vandalized the local temple and brawled with locals, leaving one Qing civilian mortally wounded. He died the next day. Upon learning of the incident, Elliot began to try covering up the crime. He sent large cash bribes to the families of the victim, as well as additional payments for the village where the incident took place. Of course, when Lin Zexu found out about the killing, he dispatched detectives to interview witnesses and conduct what can only be described as a very thorough investigation. He posted flyers around Macau detailing the findings of that investigation and demanding that the offending sailors be turned over for trial. He also hired an American doctor to translate a Swiss book on international law, which helpfully explained that, quote, any foreigner who commits a crime must be punished by the law of that country, end quote. <laughs> Despite what the Swiss legal track said, the British didn't recognize Qing law, and turning over the perpetrator would have violated the principle of extraterritoriality that the British were trying to will into existence. Instead, Elliot held a short, impromptu trial for the sailors involved. Although Elliot didn't determine who struck the fatal blow, it's unclear how hard he tried, five sailors were found guilty of assault and shipped home with prison terms and fines. And most importantly, they were shipped out of reach of Qing justice. When the wanted sailors arrived back in Britain, their convictions were promptly overturned and they were freed because Elliot was deemed to not have had the authority to try and convict British citizens. He was the top representative of the British government in China and responsible for their safety and property, but he had almost no power to direct or sanction them. This is a good example of how Elliot was simultaneously the most powerful agent of the British government in the eyes of the Qing authorities, but fairly powerless with his own countrymen. It wasn't a good position to be in. After waiting in vain to receive the sailors for trial and punishment, Lin issued an order forbidding local servants and shopkeepers in Macau from having any further dealings with the British. Wells were poisoned on Hong Kong to prevent sailors bobbing in the island's harbor a place to refill their kegs. Troops were massed nearby. Elliot and the British families in Macau took the hint and fled to their nearby ships to contemplate their next move. It only took a few weeks before Elliot finally grew tired of bobbing on a ship in Hong Kong Harbor. Supplies, especially fresh water, were running low, and something needed to happen to change the situation. On September 4th, Elliot sailed three ships up toward a line of Chinese war junks that blocked access to fresh supplies. Elliot sent Carl Gutzloff to parley with the Qing and demand that their junks sail aside and let them pass. 
warning that refusal would lead to violence. The Qing commanders said that they had their orders and that they wouldn't move. After the deadline passed and no water or food were supplied, Elliot ordered an attack and his boats blasted through the opposing ships with ease. This got Lin's attention. He knew the British were powerful on the sea, and perhaps he'd push them a little too far if this was their reaction. Losing battles to these barbarians would not be in his interest. He just wanted the opium gone, and every day more traders were coming forward to sign the agreement to never import opium again. So, after Elliot's attack, Linz issued reverse course and allowed the Chinese traders to sell supplies to the British. By September 15th, Macau was safe enough for Elliot and his compadres to return. By the end of October, the relationship fell apart again. A number of British traders who had signed Lin's bond wanted to start trading again, but Elliot this time ordered them not to until his demands were met. There are conflicting reports as to exactly what happened next, but the result was the same. In early November, a handful of British ships opened fire and routed a Qing fleet, either to prevent a merchant fleet from trading or to protect the merchant fleet from Qing attack depending on whose account you believe. And that's where we'll leave Charles Elliot and Lin Zexu, locked in a low-grade conflict in and around Guangzhou as 1839 came to a close. Next episode, we'll pick up with that stream of letters that Charles Elliot dutifully dispatched to Lord Palmerston when they and other correspondents from British traders began arriving in August of 1839. They kicked up a vigorous debate and an immensely close and consequential vote for war. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review. Ratings and reviews will help other listeners find the show. If you have any feedback for the show, comments, or questions, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TinyInsectPod.